0: Hello and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson.
1: Okay, so what we took, we went through is we looked through... The Greek Influence on Augustine. Now I want to take you into Augustine just briefly, and then we're going to do some scriptures tonight. Because I'm going to do church history kind of stuff, and then scriptures in the same night. What I want to go over is, is, and I give you a handout, it says Early Christian Authors 95 to 400 A.D., in that page right there. And you can read through this a lot on your own. I'm just going to briefly touch on a few things. And what you want to understand from church history is this... Before Augustine, and we're talking like the scripture says, 95 is when John wrote the book of Revelation, okay? So from 95 AD, when John was alive, to 400 AD, all church fathers believed in free will. You will not find any church father that doesn't. And... They, like you say, you see on that first sentence, they unanimously taught relational, divine, eternal predestination. Which meant this, that God elected persons to salvation based on foreknowledge of their faith. And that's what the early church fathers considered predestination. Okay, does that make sense? So they acknowledged predestination, but they said you're predestined based on God knowing, foreknowing, that you would believe. Now, today they call this Arminianism. But what do you call it before Augustine? When all the church fathers believed this. You can't call it Arminianism because Arminianists didn't exist at that point in time. All the church fathers believed this. Now, remember who the church fathers are. And I'm not saying these people are, are infallible. Please understand me. They're not the apostles. But some of these church fathers were some of the disciples of the apostles. Okay, That's how close they were to the apostles. They were tutored by the apostles. Okay, Some of them, not all of them, but some of them were. Some of them were tutored by pastors who were under Timothy and who were under Paul. You're not too far away from that generation. I want you to think about that. Now, I know a lot of things happened. The church very early on went anti-Semitic. I understand that. You have to understand that as well. The church divorced itself from its Jewish roots, and that messed up a lot of their theology. But just set that aside, there is no church father that believed today like any Calvinist person today does. Not one. Until Augustine. And so I put some different things on there. One of their main issues was this. That humans were made in the image of God. To the early church fathers, being made in the image of God gave you free will. Okay? Because we talk about incommunicable attributes of God and communicable attributes to God. So when you're made in the image of God, He gives you communicable attributes. God is free, and one of the attributes He gives to you and I is freedom as well. Okay? He gives us the ability to make decisions Freedom of the will, if you want to call that, okay? That's much like him as well. Okay, they believed that even though believers had a sin nature that corrupted them, that caused them physical death, that it did not affect their imago day, their image of God in them, and then thus it gave them the abilities to still believe. Okay? which is the opposite of what Calvinism teaches. Calvinism teaches you can't believe. You're so corrupted that you cannot believe. They believe, they say total depravity, but it's total inability. You cannot believe, period. Your free will is gone. Your sin nature has corrupted you so bad that you're nothing but dead, deadness. You can't respond. Now, one of the things that they were fighting about in the early church is they were fighting against, and I have these on the uh, second paragraph, They were fighting against determinism, against different cults and sects out there in the early church. The ones who they were fighting, chronologically, this is how it went. The Qumranites, Gnosticism, Neoplatonism, and Manichaeanism. That's who they were fighting. Let me start with the Qumranites. We didn't study the Qumranites. If you go to Israel, they'll take you out to Qumran, out there by the Dead Sea. And out there in Qumran, that's where the, uh, you know, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. There was a the Qumranic community out there in that area. And um, they basically had separated themselves from Israel. They had said the temple was, it was perverted. And they were right. The temple was perverted. Jesus pointed that out twice, right, by driving the people, driving the money changers out of the temple. So they said the, the, the whole Judaism is corrupt, which it was. And so they went out and lived in the Qumran area. You can see their remains and stuff and everything is preserved quite nicely out there because of the weather. The Qumran community though was calvinistic. I know that I'm using a terminology from today on them, but they were very deterministic. They had gotten a determinism from stoicism. Okay? So in that Qumran community, they believed in early determinism. They were a Jewish sect that believed in determinism. So this was influenced by Greek theology Then Gnosticism, obviously, was influenced by all these groups, Neoplatonism, and then Manichaeanism. And so we talked about these other ones. I don't want to go over it. But all I wanted to say is these were the people the early church was fighting. These were the thought patterns the early church was fighting. And they were fighting against determinism. Okay? What I want you to understand then if they're fighting against the Manichaeans, the Gnostics, the Stoics, the Neoplatonists, and the Essenes out there in the Dead Sea, I want you to understand what they were fighting. They were fighting against false theology systems and false gods. Because in the determinist God, that God was a foreign God to the Bible. That was not the loving God. That was a very Greek, hardcore God that gets anything he wants. Okay? He gets anything he wants. And that's, it's very Greek, okay? That a God can get anything he wants. He can do anything he wants. Can God do anything he wants according to the Bible? There's things God cannot do. He can't be tempted, number one. What else can God cannot do? He cannot lie. He cannot sin. Because he's holy. His nature prevents him from doing anything he wants to do because his nature is good. And that good nature is what makes, it drives the decisions of God, drives uh, how God operates with us. Not that he's independent from his nature. He's, his nature is one and the same, but it doesn't allow him to sin. It doesn't allow him to lie. And it does not allow him to do anything he wants because then at some point he would violate his own nature by doing that. Right? If God says, I'm going to lie, and I just I want to do what I want to do, and I'm going to lie, he would cease to be God at that point. Okay? But the Greek gods did operate like that. They could do anything they wanted to do. And if they wanted to squash humans just for the pleasure of it, they could squash humans. So this is what the early church is fighting against, this kind of God uh, from the Greeks. This goes on for some time. And they're fighting this, they're fighting this, and they're fighting this. And they went out on some of these things, okay? So then Augustine comes in. And you can go down in your paper, and it says Augustine of Hippo's traditional theology, three eighty-six to four eleven A.D. This is interesting about, and this is again more church history. Augustine is in agreement with the early church fathers through that period of time. On your notes, from three eighty-six to four eleven, all of Augustine's writings reflect free will. The exact theology of the early church fathers. He doesn't diverge. Okay? And then, I mean, he believes in, like on your notes, he defends human free choice, election based on God's foreknowledge, and he did that for over 25 years until 412 AD. Then, this is the dilemma when you look in church history none of us can figure this out. No one can figure this out. But in 412, he does an about-face and he completely changes everything in one year. And no one knows because then Augustine goes silent for the next 15 years. He doesn't explain what happened. He doesn't do anything. But all of his writings start coming out and he is actually reversed the whole thing overnight, virtually. Now, I don't know what happened theologians of church history look back and they don't know what happened. But he's as an about face and then he starts teaching the same nonsense as the Greek philosophers, the Manichaeans, the Neoplatonists, the Stoists and all that. He starts teaching it from their vantage point all of a sudden. Yes. Yeah, eventually, yeah. I mean, yeah, he was a prominent bishop. Augustine was a bishop. And as a bishop... Yeah, he had a major teaching role over other parishes and other dioceses. You would be on very top and you would have a lot of people, priests, so to speak, under you, like the Roman Catholic Church has. Yeah. Absolutely. They are doctrines of demons. They come up with a brand new theology, right? Yep. Yeah, you got the pattern, Stuart. That's the pattern. And, and what Stuart's trying to mention is that when you see cults develop... The founder will always have this one-on-one time with the entity. Whatever that entity is. And that entity will say, it's all wrong. We're going to start brand new with you. And here's the new theology you need to teach. And everything else is wrong. That's a pattern of Mormonism. Joel witnesses everything. Yeah, Richard, I'll come back over here. Yes, this is when he did it. Right here. On that year, something changed. And we don't know why, but it changed. Yeah. What? who did? Ah. Uh, and follow him. Yeah. So when Augustine did it, he was very powerful at this point in time. He's a bishop. He's a big, prominent guy in, in the church at that time. Well, he took people with him on that. So what he introduced, then people followed because he was so prominent. And unfortunately, no one bucked the system because eventually his teachings become dogma. And if you win against the dogma, they'll kill you because the church and the state were married. And so to get church discipline, that meant that the state is going to execute you, burn you at the stake, hang you, cut your head off, whatever. And so no one bucked the system. If you disagreed with Augustine, then you were considered a heretic at that point, and then you were able to be killed. So you can see how he makes this this change, and all of a sudden he gets the power of Rome behind him which Constantine married to the church, the Holy Roman Empire, and all of a sudden he has the backing of civil magistrates to push his dogma. And it became the dominant force in the Catholic Church through the Protestant Reformation. Now, your guess is as good as mine of why Augustine changed things, but no one's been able to come up with it. We know during that period of time he was debating with the Pelagians, okay, And we know that, and they were a heretical group, and that's why they call you and I, who are non-Calvinists, they'll call you a semi-Pelagian, and that's wrong. That's a straw man argument. We are not semi-Pelagian. But anyway, at that time, Augustine was debating with Pelagius and the Pelagians. And what we noticed in church history is that in his argumentation with the Pelagians, he starts bringing in this other doctrine of Manichaeanism, Stoicism, Neoplatonism, and whatnot and then starts down that path, that might be a clue, I don't know. But for 15 years, he goes silent. All I can say is this. At this point, I can clearly say, something wrong happened to him. Something very, very evil happened to him. Because folks, whatever happened to him, changed the whole course of Christian history. Because his theology became the dominant theology of the church and is of Protestantism, even in the Reformation, and still is with us today in many churches. So whatever happened, I have a funny hunch that something demonic happened to him. I have a funny hunch because this kind of stuff, yes, you see where it came from, is demonic. And then he starts pushing the demonic stuff. Well, that's all I can conclude that something demonically happened to him, we don't know, but it changed him overnight. And that's scary. That's really scary. But as you can see, and we're going to take a five-minute break, you will see this in church history where a guy's going, a guy's going, and he's right, he's right, he's right, and then all of a sudden, boom, something happens, and he flips and turns 180. What is that called in Scripture? When you depart from something. Apostasy. So at the very minimum, I can say, Augustine apostatized radically. Radically. Anyway, we'll come back in in five minutes, okay? So the Scriptures I want to highlight tonight, and maybe we won't get through it all, is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And you probably know that verse by heart. I want to interpret it as the Calvinists interpret it and then show you how to unpack that. And uh, right there on the top there in Ephesians 2.8.9, it says, For by grace you are saved through faith. And this, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should or might boast. Okay, you know that passage very well. The idea there is, uh, the brackets in there, except for that Greek word. The brackets there is not in the Greek. It's, it's added in the English, so it makes sense. But in the Greek, those words don't exist. But you get the gist of it. So here's what the Calvinists say about this passage. And I want you to look at this passage very thoroughly. They would say, ah, see what it says? For by grace are you saved through faith. And this is what? Not of yourselves, but what is it? A gift of God. So they'll say, you see, this passage teaches not only grace is a gift, but faith is a gift as well. Do you see that? Okay. What you're going to see in church history next week when we look at Augustine, when he started developing uh, from the Stoics, from the Neoplatonists and all these Manichaeans, is he developed the concept that faith is a gift from God. And they're basing it on Ephesians 2. So if you're having an argument with Augustine or a modern-day Calvinist, they're going to say, this passage teaches that faith is a gift. Therefore, you must be regenerated first, and then faith is given to you. So faith doesn't come from you. They say faith is given to you as a gift. So you can only believe God allows you to believe. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't come from you. No, not by Calvinism. No, no. no. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking as devil's advocate right now, Calvinist. And they would say, what do you mean, Eric, that pagans can exercise faith? You mean, they would say, well, in our system, of course they can exercise faith because God regenerates them. And then a pagan can believe. Ah, oh, yeah, that's true. But they would qualify that as, okay, that's not saving faith. You can have faith in your kid for hitting a home run, you know, they say, Eric, but that's not the same as salvation faith. They would say to you that you're mixing categories. Again, I'm, I'm devil's advocate right now. And who is Romans twelve three written to? Believers. There is a gift of faith As far as, not for salvation, but for believers to exercise a greater amount of faith. There's that. Right, he would only give faith to the elect. Right, he'd only give faith to the elect. Because the non-elect, they're not going to to believe. He's not going to regenerate them because he didn't want to regenerate them. So he's not going to give them the gift of faith. So he puts the call out to them, but they can't respond. Because number one, they're not going to be regenerated. So they can't believe. Yeah, loopy. It does. Right, it's over and over again. But they're going to say loopy. But look at this verse. This verse says that faith is a gift, loopy. I know what you say, but deal with Ephesians 8 and 9, they're going to say. Deal with that one because it says faith is a gift here. And so it's talking about in the context of salvation, is it not? Paul is talking about salvation. Would you all agree that the context is salvation? Of course, it is about salvation. He's not talking about anything else other than salvation. So then he's adding that grace and faith is a gift, according to Paul, right or no? What's the gift? Grace is a gift, but he's but he's he, he. grace is a gift. Salvation. What now? Ah, is so. Here's the deal. I'm looking at this passage, and you're saying, is grace the gift? Is faith the gift? Here's where the question comes. Right now, this is what you have to answer. And this is what you have to answer. Tauto. You have to tell the person what tauto refers to, which the English is this or that. And this, not of yourselves... What is tauto? What does tauto refer to? Does tauto refer to grace? Does tauto refer to faith? Or does it refer to both? And this is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone sh- might boast or should boast. What is this thing in the text? Grace? So this is where we had to go into the Greek a little bit. This is not hard. It's just you got to understand the rules of Greek. In Greek, when you look at the word tauto, which is, is this thing, this thing, you have to match it with its antecedent, something that comes before that it's referring to, okay? In the antecedent that comes before, the antecedent must agree in number. And either masculine, or feminine, or neuter. Okay? So the antecedent, so basically what you gotta do is start with the word, and, and if you're looking at this or that, or whatever that means, I gotta find what that word is in. Is it masculine, singular, neuter? Is it singular, plural? And that will tell me what it refers back to. And if it doesn't refer back to anything in, the, in that first text, I gotta keep going back. And I kind of keep going back, and I kind of keep going back until I run into the antecedent. Now, if it's beyond the text, if it's beyond the book, then I have to come up with something else, and I'll tell you what that is. Okay, so like I said on your your outline, pronouns agree with their antecedent in gender and number. Their case is determined by their use in their own clause. And this is from the Manual of Grammar of Greek New Testament. Anyway, faith. Let's just take faith. Faith in the Greek is feminine. The this or the that in the Greek is neuter. What does that tell you? It can't be faith. The rules of Greek prevent that the this or the tauto. It has to agree, and if, it, and if faith is feminine in the Greek, then it doesn't agree. And therefore, faith is not the antecedent of Tauto. Ah. Well, maybe it's grace. Is it grace? No, it's not grace either. Yeah. You're on to something, so hold that thought. The antecedent. It's God's word, he was saying, okay? So within Ephesians 2.8 and 9, faith is not able, able to be connected to this, and grace is not able to be connected to this. Uh-oh, i got a problem. I have a huge problem now because my neuter has no other words it refers to in this passage. Huh, it's not referring to grace. So, he, Paul is neither saying that grace is a gift nor is he saying faith is a gift. Then, what is the gift? If I continue to look, the gift of God, it's a gift, it is the gift of God, okay, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's something he, Paul is referring to that you can't boast about, you can't do enough good works about, because it's not of yourself. You can't earn it. You don't you, you it's not works. Okay, yes. Salvation, yeah, Richard? Yeah, you're on the same vein. All of that contributes to the one overarching theme of this chapter. He's again, think about it in this. He's saying, Richard, this thing that I'm talking about that comes by grace through faith cannot be worked for. Salvation, but is salvation spoken of in that Ephesians 2, 8, 9? Ah, uh, no, it's not. But here's another Greek rule. If there is no antecedent in the text, then I am to go to what's called the conceptual antecedent. What is the concept that Paul is speaking about? Salvation. The conceptual antecedent in the text, the neuter refers that this or that thing is referring to the conceptual antecedent, which is salvation. Therefore, here's my original question. Since the neuter refers to the conceptual antecedent, then faith is not a reference to the gift. What is the gift? The gift of God is what? Salvation. How does salvation come? By God's grace, but through faith of the individual and then salvation is given as a gift and you that you cannot earn, that Messiah earns for you. Hence faith is not The gift. Salvation is the gift. Are you guys following me? A conceptual antecedent has to step back because it's not in the text and you then have to understand the context of what the author is speaking about. That's what you do in Greek. You go back, go back. Okay, it's not there, it's not there, not there. Okay, man, I can't even find it in the text. Then step back and look at the context. What is he speaking about? Salvation. Bingo. Conceptual antecedent. Okay, so when a Calvinist says, no, see, Ephesians 2.8.9 says faith is a gift, then please tell me that what this is Greek 101. Okay? You don't have to be a Greek scholar to know this. So why do those who go to seminary and study Greek haven't figured this out? This is to me, folks, is the most perplexing thing I see in theology today. Smart men with very high IQs are ignoring rules of grammar in the Greek. And I don't understand this. This is what makes me inflamed about Calvinists. How dare you ignore the rules of Greek? It's Greek 101. And you're ignoring that the antecedent must match That word. I don't know what to really think about that. Maybe you have some ideas. Wait a second. I thought all these scholars were just go by the book and go by what the words say and go by the definitions and line up with what the Greek and the Hebrew says. Oh no, my friends. What you're seeing in Christianity is exactly the same thing you see in society. People have group think and they don't want to be excluded from the group. That's all this is about. They have their little friends and all their friends are this way or they want to be like this. And so they go into the group and yet they will flat out deny Greek rules. Yeah, secret societies, whatever you want to call them, man. And I'm thinking, has it come to this? Is all of this what this is built on? Yes, of course it is. So when Paul mentions to the Corinth church, and this is where I want you to see the groundwork on this, he says, hey, dude, I'm paraphrasing him. He goes, I don't get why all of you guys are all messed up. One guy follows Apollos. One guy says he follows me. One guy says he follows this guy. and Another group says they follow Jesus, and they're, they're the right ones. And he's basically hammering the cliques in the Corinth church who have then come together, not because of theology, but because of their group acceptance. And he's saying, you're causing factions and division in the church. I'm going to hammer you about that one. And he does hammer them. But see, you can see now in the theological realm, people make decisions a lot of times, not based on theology. I'm, I'm sure everyone here, I'm speaking to the choir, that you made decisions based on theology. But most Christians don't make decisions on theology. They make it on if their friend goes there. Or oh, my teenager likes this church because they, they climb rock walls all the day long. And so my teenager, I want my teenagers to go. They really like it. Yeah, because they like it because, you know, there's fun things to do. You're not studying the Word of God. Or I go over here because my neighbor goes there and I'm friends with him. I don't like the pastor, but I go there because my so-and-so friend goes there. Or I like, like she said, I like my Sunday school group or whatever. Or I like this or I like that or I like this. And before you know it, you're thinking, oh my goodness, you're making decisions based on groupthink rather than theology. What you're seeing here is that people are more loyal to a system than the Scriptures themselves. That's scary. That's really scary. You know why? Because how many, went, how many, how many attended that Bible study? Uh, oh, okay, great. That's all we care about. Uh, 30? You said 30? Okay, okay, 30. Great. I don't care what they teach. Uh, just next week better be 35, and then the next week better be 40. I know how that game is played. They don't care what you teach. That's why they teach Beth Moore. Throw a Beth Moore out there. Throw that out there. That's like throwing, uh, uh, I don't know, food to a starving animal or something like that. Throw, throw Beth Moore out there. You get 200 people. And she's teaching heresy. She's teaching contemplative prayer. Teaching how to people do om. But how many did you have? 200. I oh, Just throw her out there again. Throw her out there again. It works. So that's the application, folks. I don't want you to ever forget this. So as you go through this, as we start unpacking scriptures, and it becomes very obvious to you how the scriptures should be interpreted and how they're being misinterpreted, now I want you to understand what the game is in Christianity and who's playing it. It scares me to think that people are making non-theological decisions. Yeah, unfortunately they are. Here's my question to you guys. You ever think that one day they're stand for Jesus, and what is He going to say to them about the systems they were part of? Oh, you like Bethel because the, the the gold dust flew down and feathers came down, and they told you that was angels from heaven, right? And you believe that, right, from Bethel, and you went for it, right? You like that? Let me tell you something. That ain't me. That's demonic. And so they're going to be cut in two, according to uh, Matthew 24, which means they're going to have the biggest reprimand they could possibly ever imagine from the Messiah himself for getting involved in that. Oh, you like this or you like that doctrine, that false doctrine like that? Let's talk about that one. But the issue then becomes is, if people just shrug their shoulders and say, eh, well, you know, what, do we, you know, what can you do? We just, you know, We're under grace, we're under the blood. I love Jesus, just like you do. Oh, I get it. You're saved. I'm not denying you're saved. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, when you get in front of Jesus and he goes through all that, you cannot be rewarded for that bad theology. You are required to have your theology straight. And if you don't, you're going to lose rewards on that. You're going to lose rewards for apostasy, which is happening right now, right? So it's a big deal. But I guess people... Like the the psychological effect of belonging rather than standing alone. So let me ask you this psychological, spiritual aspect. I'm like, why are they not freaked out? How are they not freaked? I mean, take take any crazy person up in the pulpit. Take any crazy teacher out there. Why are they not losing sleep at night, freaking out? Because of the terror of the Lord, as the Apostle Paul said. What, 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 how do they sleep? I couldn't sleep at night if I was perpetrating false doctrine. i, I, I think, oh my goodness, I'm going to die. He's going to kill me. <laughs> got to be balanced. <laughs> Ying and yang, right? <laughs> okay, there you go. Got to be balanced. I don't know. If you can answer that question, how they sleep at night, let me know next time, okay? Because I don't know how anyone could. Let's pray. Yes, go ahead. One more. Yeah, it it really does. You're on to something psychological. So think about this. The psychological idea of belonging to a group gives security, doesn't it? You nailed it. And so it's worldly security rather than the security of this. That's what it's about. Good point. Let's pray and get it going. Yes, J.D., one more thing. (laughs) <laughs> I know some people would want them to go to hell, but um, no. You, you, JDs are several categories you got to keep in mind. There's the one category of the wheat among the, uh, the sorry, the tares among the wheat. Those are fake believers. Christian, but they're not. That's one category. Then you have another category of worldly believers. They're immature. Then you have another category of new believers. They're immature. And then you have the other category of, did I say worldly? And then carnal. Carnal believers are ruled by the flesh. And then you have the other category of spiritual believers, mature believers. So here's the question. You have to find out, and only God may know, where they're at in that category of different people. Because you don't want to do a black and white thing like a Calvinist will do. Because a Calvinist is like, well, they're just not saved. No, no, that's just one category. And then you have all these other categories that it could be carnal, worldly, immature, that kind of thing. So that's that's kind of where you have to understand the person. Are they worldly? Are they carnal? Things like that. Yeah, they might be carnal. They might be carnal. It might be worldly. They're worldly. They bring in the world into their church. So you can then make two destinies then. Okay? The fake Christian is gonna have a very severe torment in the lake of fire, okay? That's that person. The other categories of immaturity, worldliness, carnal, and then spiritual, that comes down to how they're rewarded. And like Paul said, some of them will have the smell of smoke on them as they come through the fire because everything got burned up. They're in heaven, but they can't be rewarded. Everything got burned up. They made it, but that's it.
0: Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons, and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws nearer.